This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to Beyond Politics and a special crossover edition into the Great Ideas podcast feed broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and this week on Beyond Politics, we've been talking a lot about President Biden's decision to give holders of student loan debt substantial aid by canceling up to $10,000 in debt for those making less than $125,000 and an additional $10,000 in loan forgiveness for Pell Grant recipients. It seems like the decision has made no one happy. Progressives argue that it's woefully insufficient, well short of the $50,000 per borrower that some leaders were advocating for. Republicans describe it as a bailout, something that helps a small slice of people in our society, those with the greatest potential for earning more money over their careers, and that it does so on the backs of people who earn a lot less. And people like me, kind of in the middle, are just wondering, why this? Why now? Couldn't we maybe have crafted a better policy? And that's why today's show, I think, is going to present something of a curveball. And I want to warn all of you about it in advance, because our guest today is Brian Riedel. He's a senior fellow with the Manhattan Institute, who's an expert in economic policy, having worked for six years as chief economist to Senator Rob Portman. He was the staff director of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Fiscal Responsibility and Economic Growth. That's a mouthful. And he was the director of budget and spending policy for Marco Rubio's presidential campaign. He's just written an article in the Dispatch all about the student loan payment. So, if you're expecting that this discussion will be full of criticism of the Biden plan, you're right. But before you hit pause on this podcast or turn the radio dial to something else, what may surprise you is that Brian reserves just as much criticism for the Republican response to the Biden plan and what it says about where the Republican Party has landed today. So I am really looking forward to unpacking all of this with Brian Riedel. Brian, welcome back. Glad to be here, Matt. Thank you. Well, you're kind of a trailblazer. You are a three-time guest on Great Ideas. And if we sneak this show into the Great Ideas podcast feed, you will go where no man has gone before. Congratulations. I, I, I don't know. Maybe we'll give you a jacket or something. First-time guest on Beyond Politics. And I think the politics of what you're discussing are super duper interesting. I want to get to that. But first, I just want to deal a little bit with the substance of, of the argument, because there's a discussion to be had there, clearly. And you lay out what I think is probably the most succinct and powerful summary of what you might call a traditional conservative Republican view on this that I've seen so far. So maybe you can just walk it through us, walk it through for us. So from your perspective, what's the core of your argument about why this plan is badly directed and badly executed? Oh, where, where to start? There's so many points to hit. What the president has attempted to do is essentially a bailout up to $40,000 for families earning up to a quarter million dollars a year. It's unnecessary, unjust, expensive, inflationary, probably illegal. It's a $600 billion bailout that's going to include doctors, lawyers, MBA business executives, 
let's let's break that down. When I say unnecessary, it's unnecessary because two thirds of millennials carry no student loan debt. And the vast majority who do borrow pay just 4% of their income for their student loan, about $182 a month for the typical $30,000 student loan that someone graduates with. Really, only 6% of college students borrow more than $100,000, and that's mostly from medical, law school, and business school debt, which are going to pay a lot more. So that's unnecessary. It's unjust because this bailout is simply not fair to those who did not attend college. For those who work to avoid student loans, who repaid their loans, people who borrow money should repay it period, especially when, when it's an investment and you're going to be getting most of the benefits yourself. The bailout essentially makes chumps and suckers out of those who, as Bill Clinton famously said, played by the rules. Those who did the right thing and repaid their loans get nothing. It's expensive because it could cost as much as a trillion dollars over 10 years, and that's just the first round of bailouts. It's inflationary. Jason Furman, former Obama White House chief economist, said that it could cost a typical family about $200 in higher prices and in turn cause the Federal Reserve to have to raise interest rates even higher, which is going to cost jobs. It's probably illegal. The president doesn't have the authority to go spend $600 billion without congressional authorization. And finally, and this is perhaps most importantly, it's a political payoff that doesn't even address the underlying problem. It doesn't fix our school financing and college financing problems. In other words, universities are probably just going to do what they usually do, which is hike tuition to capture the additional aid. The more students are going to borrow in anticipation of future student loans, the more universities are just going to raise tuition. And according to the Federal Reserve, universities usually raise their tuition to capture 60% of all student aid. So you're going to get more borrowing, higher tuition. We're going to be right back here in five years because we're not actually fixing the problem. We're just bailing it out. I mean, I can dive into any of those more deeply, but I think this is a really, really unwise policy. That's I like I like I said, there was a lot of numbers in there, a lot of information. I'd expect nothing less from an expert <laughs> economist. But I do think that was sort of a great, succinct summary of pieces that I've heard kind of around the commentariat out there about criticisms of, of this plan. Now, I do want to break it down just a little bit because I think it's useful for us to define the parameters of sort of where the economic argument is, where, where the moral, political, and economic arguments right. lie. So let's talk first of all about perhaps the biggest one, who benefits. Now, the Department of Education estimates that 90% of the dollars in this plan will go to those making less than $75,000 a year. So it does seem like if you take those estimates at face value, it does seem like there's there's a little bit of a, well, maybe a strong argument each way. What you're putting forward is the idea that there are people here who don't seem to really need this, who are going to be included. What the Biden administration is arguing is, okay, maybe, but 
the vast majority of this is going to people who have a much stronger case than the worst case that you just laid out. What do you make of that and that that kind of divide? Well, even if you take the White House's numbers at face value, 75,000 is still about 120% of median family income. And again, these are individuals who have a typical student loan payment that is about $182 a month. If you're making $75,000 a year, $182 a month is not going to be fatal. And again, this is for a degree that's going to raise your income by $1 million at least over your, over your career. So I still don't know that that's the best use of government dollars in terms of progressives talk about prioritizing the needy. Is even a $75,000 a year person with a $180 a month student loan payment really the neediest person? Additionally, one of the issues with looking at current income, whether it's 75,000 or 125,000, is it doesn't take into account lifetime income. Mm. A lot of the individuals who are borrowing right now are in their first couple of years out of college. They're in their first year out of law school. They're, they, or perhaps they just finished their MBA. These people over the course of their career are gonna get raises. They're gonna make good income. By the time they're in their 40s and 50s, you're looking at a lot of what will be the educated elite 20 to 30 years from now. And so if you just take a snapshot of what somebody's making at age 26 and say they're needy, you're not taking into account that some of these degrees are going to, these people are going to be making, some of these people are going to be making half a million dollars a year by the time they're 50 with some of these degrees. And so I think the way that economists would look at this is not just a snapshot of current income, but over the course of their lifetime income, lifetime benefits from this investment. And it gets back to the point I said earlier in this in this answer, which is, is this the best use of government resources? Again, if we're concerned about inequality, if we're concerned about poverty, if we're concerned about people in, in rural America or in inner cities that progressives talk about, why are we putting almost a trillion dollars when all is said and done towards upwardly mobile college graduates, because that's a trillion dollars you're not putting forth the working class who, 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 who could probably use the money a lot more. That's actually a great segue to another argument that you hear coming from more of the progressive side and certainly from the White House as well, which is that there is an element of racial social justice embedded in this plan, that the average debt for Black students four years after graduation, about that age 26 line that you, you were just referring to, is $53,000, and that's twice as much as white student debt. And so, and as a matter of fact, I got into it on Twitter with Sophia Nelson, a, a former Republican who commentates on CNN, and she said, look, you really have to acknowledge the, the race-based wealth gap in order to really engage meaningfully in this discussion. That's an important element of this. And this policy goes right at the heart of addressing some of that wealth and wealth formation gap. What do you make of that argument that you have to at least acknowledge that portion of this and that this is going to disproportionately benefit people who Americans who have had a hard time kind of crossing that gap accumulating a baseline of wealth and getting out of this overhang of debt. I'm not sure that a broad-based student loan bailout up to with giving $40,000 to families earning up to a quarter million dollars a year is really the best tool for targeted aid towards 
minorities who are over leveraged. That's not how the, the policy was designed. The policy was designed with an extraordinarily broad brush. And if you read a really good Washington Post investigation over the weekend by Jeff Stein, it explains how originally President Biden wanted something narrowly focused to the neediest borrowers, but his staff a lot of Elizabeth Warren, former staffers who went into the Biden White House, convinced him to go big and broad and include doctors and lawyers and MBAs and, and, and a lot of those individuals. And so I'm not sure if this is the, the tool to address economic inequality. And as for those who are truly needy, we have programs that already exist. We have loan forgiveness programs on the books. There are programs that already cap how much truly needy individuals should pay per month out of their discretionary income. The president is, is, is tightening those, but the programs already exist. And so if we're really concerned about the hardest cases, the neediest cases, whether they're black, white, any, and any race, there are programs out there already to help the neediest. You don't have to bail out people earning a quarter million dollars a year and help them pay for their law degree. One of the aspects of this that you just alluded to that I think is really important is understanding that President Biden had already, before the announcement of this plan, done more on student loan debt than any president in history. He had delivered about $17 billion in loan relief, and it was, as you suggested, highly targeted, mostly targeted to people who had been part of for-profit universities that were essentially scams. I'm not going to throw a haymaker here at Trump University, but yeah, they fit. I, I mean, we're talking about the ITT techs and the, the, these kinds of scammy institutions that promised, here is some value that you will get in terms of a career track and lifelong earnings that you did not get. Now, there's another subset of Americans, apparently as many as 39 million people who went to college and didn't finish a degree. And that can happen for all kinds of reasons. And while we don't want to encourage excessive risk-taking in our society, we don't want to start to lean into moral hazard that you're, you're going to be bailed out from every risk you take, there is an argument, I think, to say, look, we want people to invest in themselves. We want to encourage people to try to improve their career track, to, to seek training and valuable degrees. And if for whatever reason you go down that path and you're unable to, maybe that's a category of people who should get a little bit of student loan relief. What do you make about that aspect of the argument that this is going to particularly help people who fall into that category, those 39 million Americans? Yeah, I, th I think... First off, I, I do think there is a certain degree of personal responsibility that has to be dealt with. I think if you if you start bail, I don't if you do a blanket policy that says if you don't graduate you get a bailout, you create all sorts of moral hazard and and incentive issues. But at the same time, again, we do have programs that already exist for people who have student loans but not the means to pay for it. We have income driven repayment programs. We have policies where if you pay a certain certain small percentage of your income for a certain number of years, 10, 15 years, and then the rest is forgiven. We have programs that already exist. And if, if, if that's not enough, Beth Akers, who is my former colleague at the Manhattan Institute, who is currently at the American Enterprise Institute, has written that had we done a bailout of about $5,000, that would have taken care of a lot of the individuals who didn't graduate or who were in in the harder cases, because a lot of the, a lot of them actually don't have the biggest student loans. In fact, 
most student loan defaults happen with people who owe less than $5,000. It's not the people with $100,000 defaulting on their student loans, the doctors and lawyers. It's the people with $5,000 who didn't graduate, have no disposable income, no margin of error, have trouble holding a job. And it's part of a broad bankruptcy that they have, even though the student loan can't be part of the bankruptcy. Those are the people who are actually defaulting on their student loans. And, and Beth had written that if you even had just done a $5,000 across the board bailout, that would have actually solved a lot of those individuals for the problems for a lot of those who didn't graduate. Additionally, I do think the people who went to scam for profit colleges do have a legitimate case for suing those universities, those colleges and universities, the fake colleges. And if they can't collect, I think there is a case for a modest government bailout for those individuals. But again, that's a small, small subset of the, the 600 to a trillion, 600 billion to a trillion that we're spending on this broad bill. We're happy to debate that, those of us on the right. But I think the first thing you have to do is, is, is move away from spending upwards of a trillion dollars bailing out up the upwardly mobile professional class. That's doing very well. I like where you landed there because I know at the top of the show, I promised all of our listeners that we were going to go around the bend on this, that we would start on, well, what is the critique that's coming from, from the conservative side? We would kind of hash through some of the arguments both ways as, as we're doing, and we would eventually land on the broader context of your article for the dispatch, which is an equal part of criticism for the Republican Party. I want to start to crab walk our way over there because you said something very interesting at the end there, which is as a conservative, there are areas of this where you are wide open to a debate. And your former colleague, Beth Akers, had suggested one of them. It's like, hey, you know what? We can see an argument for something smaller here that would hit a truly needy population that maybe we could agree on. And I think that that does kind of get to the point you were starting to make. For my part, I'm, the arguments I presented here aren't necessarily all ones that I agree with coming from the more liberal side of the coin, but I see where they're coming from as well. I, I'd say that my major take on this, and I express this in a Twitter thread that people can look on, but I'm at Matt L. Robeson on Twitter, is, look, I wrote an article for Alternet, which takes a backseat to no one in terms of being a progressive online mm -hmm. publication, at the beginning of the year saying, Joe Biden deserves an A+. Our country was in a flaming car careening off the side of a cliff when Donald Trump left office, and now we're not A+. plus. Anything else is just commentary, and that was before we got a string of legislative successes, including many bipartisan successes, including the IRA, the killing of the number one terrorist in the world, the bipartisan gun reform bill, aid to veterans, manufacturing competitiveness bill, and so on and so forth. My question was, couldn't we have done a little bit better here? Couldn't we have thought a little bit more broadly? Maybe we could have tried to do something legislatively and found a little bit of common ground and, and, and done this a little bit better. For example, you, Brian Riedel, have a graduate degree from Princeton University. I, Matt Robeson, have a graduate degree from Harvard University. I think we both agree that maybe we should not be eligible for student loan aid. I don't know if you've paid yours off. I managed to pay mine off. But maybe people who have those kinds of degrees, yeah, we just shouldn't make the cut. Oh, no, you would have lost the Harvard vote. Oh, well. You could have said, all right, there's an existing public service 
debt relief program. Brian, you re referred to it a few minutes ago, and it requires 10 years of work in a public service position. Some of the requirements for that have already been loosened by the Biden administration. Well, why not loosen them further? Why not say it's two years? Why not, if you're going to spend money, why not say, all right, we're going to we're going to try to target the relief toward people who are providing a broad societal benefit to everyone else. Why not why not try to push relief toward people who are going into skilled manufacturing work or or skilled trades? Why not say, look, we're not going to spend all this money on student debt relief. We're going to reach out to Republicans and say, look, we just did a manufacturing competitiveness bill. Now, let's make sure that we have the skilled workforce to do it and build stuff in America. That would have been politically pretty awesome. And both parties could have politically taken that home with them. And it probably would have been good economically. And then finally, I argue, hey, look, while we're at it, why not just do medical debt instead? I mean, 20% of Americans have medical debt. 80% of us live paycheck to paycheck. We can solve this. The average debt in collections today is $429. And we can discharge that for a fraction of the cost. You can buy it up because most of it never gets collected anyway. Why not tackle that? That has just as much, probably more, of a racial divide that we were talking about before. Why not help Americans that way in, in that kind of a broad way? So that was, that was my critique. But what you end up saying in your article that I found so fascinating is you reserve just as much criticism for Republicans. And I, I don't want to characterize it for you. Why, why don't you characterize it? What are you critical of Republicans about? Sure. I think, well, I think first, just to back up on the politics of this, what's interesting is the Democrats are essentially, for all their talk about helping the poor and inequality, the Democratic voter base has become more and more upwardly mobile, coastal, progressive professionals and college graduates. And that's who they're actually service serving here rather than the poor and and the working class they talk about on the flip side the republicans have become more of the working class party the trumpist blue collar working class party which makes republicans more of a natural opponent of just from the pure crass politics of benefiting your voters this is this is more of a, a democratic voter bailout and something republicans are, are there going to be the ones who are going to be resenting this as the working class individuals who may have to pay higher taxes and will certainly pay higher prices as a result? So this is really in the Republican wheelhouse to, to really oppose this, but they're not really opposing it very loudly or, or very organized. And that's for a couple of reasons. First, the Republican Party has basically just moved away from public policy in favor of cultural grievance. If you listen to conservative talk radio, you look at conservative Twitter, you go to meetings with conservatives, they're not talking about taxes or spending or health care or, or education. They're talking about Donald Trump, critical race theory, gender issues, liberal bias. Now, some of these topics are important, and some of them, I think, conservatives have a point. But the focus has completely moved away from the, the, the kitchen table policy issues, taxes, spending, size of government, foreign policy, rule of law. Conservatives are just asleep at the wheel on these issues. There's no energy. I would also add that if you're a conservative lawmaker, you don't actually even know where your voters are on economic policy today. Mm. 
And what I mean by that is under when Paul Ryan was the economic spokesperson of the party, free trade, tax cuts, spending cuts, rule of law, low regulation. Then Donald Trump comes along, big spender, anti-trade, big regulator, very populist, anti-corporate rhetoric. If I'm a Republican lawmaker, I don't even know where my voters are on economic policy anymore. Are they free marketers or are they kind of anti-corporate populists? What's happened as a result is Republicans are no longer electing policy wonks. They're electing cultural totems. <laughs> they're not electing people who can, who, who can, can converse on these issues. And if you ask, well, what have Republicans been doing on the high cost of college for the last couple of years to offer a legitimate alternative? Almost nothing. There's been a couple bills here and there. You don't hear much about it. They don't talk about it. There is a conservative narrative to be, to be discussed on, on the cost of college and student loans, but the right is too busy talking about Donald Trump and cultural grievance, and they're not even electing people who can talk coherently about these issues. So as a result, I think the Democrats are making a big mistake and Republicans are just sitting on the sidelines arguing about the Trump raid in, in Florida. I mean, amen to that. I suggested back when I had a blog before I started writing for bigger outlets than my own blog, I wrote an article in which I suggested an experiment that people could try at home. It was pretty easy. Try quickly to enunciate as, as fast as you can what the Republican Party stands for. It's pretty straightforward. At least it used to be back when I was writing this. Low taxes, small government, strong defense, traditional, I'm euphemizing here, traditional cultural values. But pretty straightforward. Everyone could probably agree with that definition of what the Republican Party stood for. Now, the same version of that experiment, and I suggested doing this in a room full of people where everyone tries to do it at once because it's more fun that way. Say what the Democratic Party stands for. Well, I still can't exactly do it. But at least I, I would say that that has now reversed. I would say that we now have at least some kind of a vision. It may be a cruddy brand that we stand for, but we, we have things that we're attached to. You can, you can sort of say the Democrats are loosely for social justice. They're loosely for giving aid to lower income people, notwithstanding your point about upwardly mobile college kids. That, uh, that we have this kind of internationalist, cooperative foreign policy stance. We have the outlines of a definition. I can no longer define, especially economically, what the Republican Party stands for. It is, and I'm telling you, I was the campaign manager for the most endangered Democrat in America 10 years ago. In 2012, when you were working for the Romney campaign, I was running a congressional race for a member of Congress who everyone thought was going to lose. And one of the major things we ran on was the Paul Ryan plan on entitlements. And it worked for us. I know, I know, hang your head, hang your head. But at least that was economically coherent. Paul Ryan was putting forward a serious plan to address entitlements. It was, I mean, politically toxic, but it helped us probably more than it helped Republicans. 
but it was coherent. It made sense. I could describe it. And now I don't think that that same possibility exists. So I, I think that was the really interesting thing about all of this. Now, look, you've dedicated your career, obviously, to being one of those policy wonks, to being one of those people who defines economic plans for the Republican Party. Is it possible? Is there any kind of economic coherence in the party these days? Is it just that it's been kind of eclipsed by focus on cultural issues and Donald Trump? Or is it that it's actually become confused at base, at base and it's no longer coherent? I have worked in the conservative movement for 25 years. Actually, my first campaign that I worked on was the 96 campaign for a House member in Wisconsin, a House candidate in Wisconsin. So really, I've worked in the conservative movement for 26 years at the grassroots level, at the activist level, governor's office, Congress, Senate, presidential campaigns, think tanks, everywhere. I have been part of Republican policymaking for more than a quarter century. I have no idea what the conservative movement believes on economic policy in 2022. I, haven't, I have no idea. You could even say low taxes. The conservative movement is for low taxes. I can tell you there's a big populist push on the right to start taxing woke corporations even more. To start bring the whole tax multinationals, bring jobs home. There's a there's a woke or there's a there's a an undercurrent, a populist undercurrent that wants to tax corporations, tax upper income individuals. Only about one in ten Republicans right now support Social Security and Medicare reform. The GOP has moved against free trade. There's a lot of push for regulations. Governor DeSantis in Florida is is branding himself as a great regulator of corporate America. These are all things that were an anathema to, to conservatives 10 years ago. I remember the Tea Party movement. I remember the push for low taxes, government spent or free trade, even on deficits. Republic, Republicans have, for the most part, stopped caring about budget deficits, which is an issue near and dear to my heart. I have absolutely no idea what conservatives believe on economics anymore. So what I do is I just keep my head down and I, I push the policies that I think are correct. And I try to see who listens and who doesn't. But I think one of the, the disruptive things of Donald Trump, and I don't mean disrupt, I mean disruptive in a value neutral way, is that he disrupted the conservative view on domestic policy. Mm. I think apparently there was a lot of frustration with the grassroots about the Paul Ryan vision, which I actually really like the Paul Ryan vision, but free trade, entitlement reform, tax cuts was apparently not as popular with the grassroots as, as Paul Ryan thought. And Donald Trump, to his credit, came in with a different populist anti-elite economic view and it blew away the Ryan view with, with conservative voters. But the result is today, I don't know what conservatives believe on domestic policy. I have no idea. I, just to kind of spike the football on your point, I was in the midst of, and I'm looking down at my phone as I say this, I was in the midst of a text exchange with another former Hill staffer I know, who is a Republican, who sent to me a, a tweet that got a lot of attention that the republicans needs to do need to do mortgage forgiveness for families with more than two children this particular friend of mine 
suggested that they do expect the next Republican president to do something like this because why, right? Because it's the same exercise that you're now saying basically President Biden is engaging in. It's a little bit of fan service to your base. And why not? That's essentially sort of the backward reasoning that's being applied here in terms of, well, what's a good policy? What should we do? What do we stand for? And I, the, the reason I wanted to go at this discussion in this order is that, first of all, that's the, the way you do it in your, in your excellent article, but also because I think the exchange that we had in the first part of the show shows that there are issues that could be discussed between serious people who care about good outcomes for Americans and just have different political philosophies. You have an inherently conservative political philosophy, mm -hmm. and it's based on a view and a deep understanding of economics that you think ultimately accords more to the common good than alternative ways of doing things. There can be shared outcomes within that. We would like to alleviate poverty for people. We would like to provide some level of safety net. There should be fairness, as you were alluding to before, for people who have been ripped off or scammed. There are, there, there, there are discussions that could be had here. And indeed, the success of the gun reform bill and the toxic burn pits legislation and the manufacturing, it's the semiconductor bill, the manufacturing competitiveness bill shows that there are zones of discussion that we are still having in Washington to this day. You and I come out of a political vintage, especially as former staffers, where this kind of thing happened all the time. I'm not looking back with rose-colored glasses. I'm not trying to say that we all sang Kumbaya. Occasionally, we did sing things at various taverns on around Capitol Hill. That did happen. But the, the point is that on an issue like student loan debt, there could be a policy discussion that includes conservatives and liberals, but we're not even close to being able to have it. And in your analysis, a major factor why is that the Republican Party has gotten overtaken with an obsession on cultural issues, fighting wokeness, and adherence to Donald Trump. Absolutely. And, and I can say, again, as a, as a fellow former staffer, the argument of Congress is a civil war and the parties never work together is vastly overstated. When I was on the Hill, I worked with Democratic offices all the time. I had great friends in Democratic offices. And the whole the whole obstructionism argument that the parties can't pass anything, it's really about four bills a year that are really high profile bills where the parties truly go to war that are just make or break, we disagree. Underneath the surface, there's usually about 100 bipartisan bills that are passing completely non-controversially, appropriations bills, authorizations. There's a lot of stuff that's actually happening under the surface that, that passes pretty easily. But I do think, yeah, right now, Democrats are going to get the votes of policy wonks because they're the only game in town. I mean, Democrats are putting out a lot of ideas on, on policy. I don't think a lot of them are necessarily what I would do. But Republic, you know, Republicans aren't, aren't even putting out alternatives. They're not even putting out a vision. We don't even know what Republicans believe because it's all cultural grievance. And going back to student loans, Democrats have put out plans and Republicans ha could have been laying the groundwork for the last six months on this. They knew this was coming. There could have been 
a Repu more Republican talk about, okay, here's, here's why we need to do something, if at all, that's more narrower, more targeted, not broad-based, not hitting graduate with some elite programs. Here's how we need to start looking at endowments. The fact that some of these private schools, the ones you and I attended, are basically hedge funds with a student body on the side that are completely untaxed. You have a lot of universities that are charging students exorbitant tuition for majors that aren't gonna get them a job. There's huge bureaucracy and middle management. And like I said, these huge endowments that are untaxed, there's a lot conservatives could have done and gone after and framed the issue, not just now in response to Biden when it's too late, but they could have started doing this six months ago and a year ago to actually give voters two competing visions. And they're just asleep at the wheel. There's just there's there's almost no policy apparatus right now that I can identify at, at the top of the Republican Party. I'm I'm putting out white papers, I'm putting out ideas, but well, you're you know, it. Brian no one listens to me. No, no, no. You are the policy apparatus. That's 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 oh, the scary part. I mean, it's good news for me, but like Yeah, but no one listens to me. Well, but I listen to you. And sometimes people People ask me because obviously I, I would say that my listenership skews left. I'd say that's fair to say. I <laughs> my my regular subscribers probably skew more toward the Democratic Party. I sometimes get pushback when I have guests. I had Wit Ayers, one of the top Republican pollsters yeah. out there last week. And frequently on great ideas, I'm featuring conservatives who have ideas. You've put forward ideas like let's devolve some federal responsibilities to the state level. Why? Because we shouldn't be fighting about these things as much. We would have much more problem solving. We'd have better localized solutions. And there's really not a good justification for using the federal government as a pass-through for transportation dollars. One of the reasons that I do that is not just because I find ideas inherently interesting, serious, well-thought-out, provocative ideas. It's also because I'd rather be having a fight about that than about stupid stuff or about like Donald Trump's grievance about the big lie. I, I mean, let's have let's have an argument about the degree to which the transportation department should exist and should oversee federal highway funds. That's that's not sexy. No one's going to run a 30 second ad about it, nor should they. Ultimately, I, I think the underlying philosophy is what we should be arguing about and also, it's the kind of thing where we can find areas where we disagree and find areas where we agree and we can advance the ball. Now, before we bum out all of those listeners who are, who are kind of left-leaning, I just I do want to underscore your point because it's something that the Princeton University or alma mater, Professor Frances Lee, it's something that she's argued and argued on this program, which is Congress is actually getting a lot more done than people realize. Okay. There's a lot more substantive work happening. So now I'm going to hit you unfairly as we reach the end of the show <laughs> with the million dollar, the billion dollar, the $600 billion question. Is there any way to claw our way back from where we are? Is there any way to get back to having meaningful, substantive discussions that come from different ideologies but that ultimately find zones of agreement and solutions? That's a tough question. I think- well, That's why I hit you with it. Yeah, well, I, I think the first thing that has to happen is I think 
the media, the Republicans have to move on beyond Trump because the more they're talking about Trump, they're not talking about policy. He is just an energy sinkhole and a focus sinkhole in the Republican party. I think the parties themselves need to change who they appeal to. Right now, both parties have kind of decided at the top of the party leadership that elections are won by ginning up low information voters mm. with distractions and cultural issues and outrage rather than elections are won by persuading people and moving a little bit to the center and trying to win thoughtful voters who do that. It's just a, a framework right now that that elections are won more by mobilizing anger than by persuading people in the center. When, when politicians figure out that you, it's more important to persuade thoughtful voters in the center than gin up low information voters with outrage, I think the rhetoric and focus will change. Now, some of that is really hard to fix. I blame social media for a lot of it, to be honest lawmakers need to get the hell off Twitter because it completely is a distortion reality field of anger, negative partisanship, and polarization. I think if they actually got out and met more people, they would actually see a silent majority of voters who really just want to debate issues and vote for the party that's going to get things done. Because ultimately, that's why we're here. I mean, that's why Congress exists. Congress doesn't exist just to fight cultural battles and go on Fox News or MSNBC. They literally exist to pass legislation on the issues of the day. But how we get back there, I wish I had an easy solution. I don't know. I mean, I'm open to your solution. I, I don't have an I don't have an easy one. I, I've had a pipe dream for a long time of writing the book about how to fix democracy, but there's no headline for it because it's a little bit like the plot in Murder on the Orient Express. Spoiler alert. There are so many culprits. Everyone did it. It's social media and it's incentives. It's the yeah. fracturing of traditional media and it's incentives. It ultimately comes down to Ryan McConaughey, the former right-hand man on policy to Chuck Schumer, said on this show that he thinks you, could, you don't fix our institutions and our politics without fixing the incentives on the outside and our broader politics for how politicians behave. And you're right. Right now, their incentive is to appeal for turnout in elections to the most rabid segments of their base and people who they know are with them and that they have to rile up as much as possible to make sure they show up at the ballot box. Well, until we achieve those solutions, I'm going to continue to enjoy discussing real issues with Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute. Brian, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Matt. It's been fun. 